This episode is brought to you by ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people, for employees, for developers, and even your customers, removing frustration and supercharging productivity. On our intelligent platform, AI isn't just a promise. It's happening today. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Tap the banner to learn more or visit servicenow.com slash AI for people. This week, there were two major developments in the fight to hold drug makers accountable for their role in the opioid crisis. On Monday, a judge in Oklahoma ruled against Johnson & Johnson and ordered the company to pay the state $572 million. This ruling is the first of its kind. The next day, on Tuesday... Journal sources said Purdue Pharma, the company that makes OxyContin, is in negotiations to resolve thousands of lawsuits. As much as $12 billion is on the table, which would be the biggest ever settlement tied to the opioid crisis. Today on the show, two days in the reckoning for drug makers over their role in the opioid epidemic that has killed hundreds of thousands of Americans. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. And I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Wednesday, August 28th. Sarah Randazzo, one of our legal reporters, covered the Oklahoma ruling on Monday. All rise. So the judge called everyone back into court on Monday. Thank you. Please have a seat. You know, instead of just dropping his ruling online and saying, okay, everyone can look for it. He said, I'm going to bring everyone back to court at this exact time. I'm going to read part of my ruling, and then it will be released. And so the courtroom was packed. The opioid crisis has ravaged the state of Oklahoma. It must be abated immediately. For this reason, I am entering an abatement plan that consists of cost totaling $572,102,028 to immediately remediate the nuisance. Everyone was really watching this case because there's these more than 2,000 other cases out there brought by states, cities, and counties um, with similar allegations against uh, Johnson & Johnson and a whole range of other companies up and down the opioid supply chain. And so people are trying to look at this number and say, okay, can we apply this to the other cases? It creates a bit of a benchmark that people can look to to say, okay, well, if you got half a billion dollars in this one case, maybe overall payments from all this opioid litigation are going to be in the many billions of dollars. This case started two years ago when Oklahoma sued three drug makers, Purdue Pharma, Johnson & Johnson, and Teva Pharmaceutical Industries. The state used a legal strategy that's gaining traction. It claimed these companies were causing a public nuisance. Often public nuisance is used for disputes over property. So if someone has, um, you know, loud dogs or a hedge that's too tall or something that's disrupting your ability to use a public or private space, that's usually a public nuisance. But increasingly, states are using public nuisance to go after companies for harms related to products. And so that's uh, what they did in this case. They say that the creation of this opioid addiction crisis essentially created a public nuisance by putting this burden on communities within Oklahoma. You know, their first responders had to respond to incidents of overdoses. 
Their hospitals had to respond to people coming into the ER and unfortunately probably dying from overdoses. But all levels of government, there was a burden put on them that they say counted as a public nuisance um, because of this widespread addiction. Before the case went to trial, Teva and Purdue settled. That left Johnson & Johnson, and they decided to fight. Why did Johnson & Johnson not settle? Obviously, I can't speak for the company, but they have a very strong reputation for taking cases to trial. They face a lot of litigation. They're just such a big company that makes so many products. And so they get sued a lot, and they have a reputation for going to trial a lot. Um, if, For instance, they also have a bunch of litigation over their baby powder, saying that baby powder might cause cancer. And they've taken a couple dozen of those cases to trial. And so that's just a little bit of their reputation that they you know, tend to have. And so the reason they don't like to settle these cases is because it would encourage more? I think it's a few reasons. I think often they do feel very strongly that their products aren't dangerous. And they say, why would we settle a case if we don't think this product's dangerous? Because then that indicates we think it is and it encourages more litigation. And so one of the catchphrases that came out in the trial is, when you're right, you fight. And I feel like that's a little bit of Johnson & Johnson's ethos overall. The trial took place in Norman, Oklahoma, and Sarah was in the courtroom for the opening arguments. People flooded to the town for the openings, uh, reporters and lawyers from all over the country. The courtroom was packed. The openings were pretty dramatic. Both lawyers had catchphrases that they used that they kind of repeated over and over during the openings to hammer home their points. There's a lawyer for Oklahoma, named Brad Beckworth, who's a pretty colorful lawyer, and, and his big catchphrase was, if you oversupply, people will die. He kept saying it over and over, if you oversupply, people will die, to try to prove the point that he says Johnson & Johnson let too many drugs into the state. Then it led to these overdose deaths. And Larry Ottaway, the attorney for Johnson & Johnson, countered with this phrase, when you're right, you fight. Over the course of the trial, there were 42 witnesses total from both sides. One of the first witnesses in the trial, which was a pretty emotional um, day of testimony, was a man whose son was a star football player. And he, a very classic story, had an injury, got prescribed um, an opioid for that pain. The father who was on the stand was named Craig Box, and his son, Austin, was a 22-year-old University of Oklahoma linebacker, and they had no idea that he was abusing painkillers until he was found unconscious at a friend's house in 2011 and, and later died at the hospital. I can't explain what happens to you as a parent when a child dies. We heard from so many parents across the that have lost children in similar circumstances, that the same story as us, had no idea, had no clue about the prevalence of the dangers of these drugs. During that testimony, they showed photos of Austin, the son, smiling in his, in his football uniform. He was a popular, well-liked player and, and student at the school. It was a Definitely emotional testimony showing how this seemingly well-adjusted football player, you know, who has everything going for him, was abusing these drugs, you know, outside of his, of his family and friends knowing about it in, until it was too late. 
So what would you say was the issue at the heart of the case? Yeah, the issue at the heart was really whether Johnson & Johnson improperly marketed these drugs. Of course, the company says these are FDA-approved drugs. We always followed the law. We abided by what the government said we could do with these drugs. The state counters that they aggressively pushed these drugs and said that they weren't that addictive and that they could be used for a really wide-range use of pain that then opened up people to addiction. And so it was really about the marketing, how much they were pushing the drugs in the state, and whether that was improper or not. Attorneys for Oklahoma pointed to examples of so-called unbranded marketing. These were marketing campaigns that talked about the benefits of opioid-based painkillers. These ads, brochures, commercials, they didn't explicitly promote Johnson & Johnson-made drugs. But the state argued that the company sold more opioids and made more money because of these marketing campaigns. And they said that the company even funded them. And how did Johnson & Johnson respond? They very just steadfastly held by their position that they did nothing wrong, that they had FDA-approved drugs that they legally sold and marketed, and that this opioid crisis is much bigger than any one company and that they are not responsible for it in any way. And they said that they make up less than 1% of the opioids sold in Oklahoma was the statistic that they often gave. And so they said, you know, this is about her- illegal heroin and fentanyl and, and things that are far beyond our control and that you cannot pin the entire opioid crisis on us. Back to Monday's ruling, the amount Johnson & Johnson has to pay is $572 million. That's far below the $17.5 billion Oklahoma was asking for. So did Johnson & Johnson get off lightly? So obviously $572 million isn't a small amount of money for most of us, but for a company of Johnson & Johnson's size, they've been hit with verdicts much larger than this. And again, they often go on appeal and can get reduced. But for instance, they were hit with a more than a billion-dollar verdict in some baby powder cases that they've had. So some analysts actually said, oh, this, this number is less than we thought it would be. But for a company the size of Johnson & Johnson, this isn't a crippling amount of money. So this is the first ruling of its kind, is that right? Well, it was the first from this big wave of cases to go to trial. So in that sense, yeah, it is is the first of its kind. After the ruling, Johnson & Johnson said it would appeal. A spokesman said the company did not cause the opioid crisis in Oklahoma and that the company is working with partners to help those in need. This summer, there's just been a lot of activity So we had this Oklahoma trial. We had the release of um, a large database uh, that the federal government keeps showing exactly where drugs went and and exactly which communities they went into and how many and which companies were responsible. And that became a big public release a few uh, weeks ago that, that caused a stir. There's now a trial scheduled at the end of October that will be a real definitive piece of the litigation. And leading up to that, I think some companies that, again, don't want to go to trial will start settling. And so there's all this talk of settlement negotiations right now. And so there's, uh, you know, we could start seeing some big settlements coming out and companies dropping out of this altogether who are just ready to, to pay a large number and go away. It appears one of those big settlements involving a very large number could happen soon. That's after the break.
episode is brought to you by ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people, for employees, for developers, and even your customers, removing frustration and supercharging productivity. On our intelligent platform, AI isn't just a promise. It's happening today. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Tap the banner to learn more or visit servicenow.com slash AI for people. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back. On Tuesday, after we talked with our legal reporter, Sarah Randazzo, about the Oklahoma ruling against Johnson & Johnson, news broke. News that Purdue Pharma, the maker of the powerful painkiller OxyContin, and its owners, the Sackler family, have been in settlement negotiations. The settlement could reach $12 billion and would resolve the more than 2,000 lawsuits against the company and the family, all related to their role in the opioid epidemic. Purdue is, in many ways, the company most associated with the opioid crisis. The company and some members of the Sackler family have been sued repeatedly for false and misleading marketing of OxyContin and downplaying how addictive the drug really is. So, we called Sarah back to explain what's going on. We've known for months that Purdue was likely to be the first company to settle all of the opioid litigation and get out completely. They just aren't as financially stable as a company like a Johnson & Johnson that's massive and does a lot of other things. Purdue really has Oxycontin and a few other drugs, but it doesn't have really strong finances at this point. And so what emerged Tuesday is that um, there's a deal on the table. It may not be the deal that ultimately gets struck, but Right now, there's the semblance of a deal that would basically put Purdue into bankruptcy, which we'd also known was a distinct possibility. And the Sacklers would completely exit ownership. It would go into the hands of three trustees and essentially become a trust where any money that's made from Oxy and from other things they do over the course of the next seven to 10 years will essentially go toward paying all these plaintiffs who are suing them. So, yeah, that's estimated to be uh, maybe 7 or $8 billion. And then the Sacklers themselves would have to contribute at least $3 billion. And so all in, um, this deal could be valued at between 10 and $12 billion. Can you talk about the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma and, and their role in the opioid crisis? Purdue Pharma makes Oxycontin, which is the well-known opioid painkiller. And the Sacklers are a family who's privately owned the company since the 1950s when three brothers bought an earlier iteration and made it into the Purdue Pharma we know today. They've taken a lot of the public heat over the years uh, for the opioid crisis. Purdue has, for better or worse, become a bit of the villain in this whole story. 
And what about the Sacklers? Yeah, so the Sacklers are a family that's owned this company for years. They're involved in a lot of philanthropy, a lot of arts. And over the past summer and and this year, there's been real blowback on them personally as well. A lot of museums and groups and nonprofits that they're involved with have said they don't want their money anymore. They've left some of the boards they've sat on. So it's been a real reckoning for them personally as well as for the company. And why would Purdue and the Sacklers consider this settlement? Well, they're running out of options at this point. There's this big trial coming up in October that they would face, and then they face around 2,000, 2,500 lawsuits after that. So at this point, they can't really litigate their way out of this without incurring huge expense. So as part of this proposed settlement, Purdue is going to emerge as this Public Benefit Trust Corporation? What does that mean? That's right. So it really essentially means that the company probably won't exist in 10 years if we're kind of seeing it through to its fruition. It's basically like what's happened with a lot of asbestos companies a few decades ago where they went into bankruptcy and then became a trust where they would just pay out legal claims for years. And so the company would still operate in terms of selling Oxycontin and doing different things, but it would be run by a group of three trustees. And the way it was described to me is basically if Purdue was turned upside down and its pockets were shaken out, anything that comes out would go into this trust and be used to benefit the plaintiffs. So this proposal would allow Purdue to avoid this massive trial coming up in October in Ohio. Can you tell us the history there? Yeah, so the opioid lawsuits really first started appearing in the summer of 2017. Uh, The Ohio Attorney General was one of the first to sue, and then we started seeing local cities and counties uh, suing one after the other. And and over the course of that summer, I watched as um, groups of cities and counties would sue. You know, there'd be a whole bundle in New York that would file. Then there'd be a whole bundle in Ohio. And you could almost see the plaintiff's lawyers moving around the country, you know, signing up clients and, and filing these lawsuits. So then as they really continued to mount toward the end of 2017, there was a request made to consolidate all the ones filed in federal court into one place. And there's a mechanism uh, that the court system has to do that. And so they signed off on it and sent them all to a judge in Cleveland federal court. And so they've been there since early 2018, late 2017. And the judge there, Dan Polster, has been very insistent from the very first day he got these cases that litigation is not the way to solve the opioid crisis and that people need help and that settlement is something that should be on the table. And he's made that clear repeatedly over the years. What has Purdue said about this proposed settlement? Yeah, so they wouldn't, uh, you know, acknowledge the terms of the settlement themselves, but they did say generally on Tuesday that, quote, the people and communities affected by the opioid crisis need help now. And they also said that they believe a constructive global resolution is the best best path forward. And they said that they've been actively working with state attorneys general and other plaintiffs to achieve this outcome. And how does this proposed settlement go from here? Yes, yeah, so they're due back to tell Judge Polster, the judge in Ohio, um, a status update on Friday. And so depending on what happens there, they could say, hey, this entire deal blew apart. They could say we're close. And so um, really it could go a, a few different ways. We could have 
a completed deal in a week, in two weeks, we could see them also just say, we're not able to reach a deal. If they do reach a deal, what would it mean for Purdue? It would be the first company to completely settle the litigation and take itself out completely. By doing so, they would essentially be saying, we will no longer be a company in the future because of these lawsuits and these allegations. And all of this litigation is centered on the devastation that opioid addiction has wrought on communities around the country. How will these developments this week help people who are addicted to opioids and their families and and that harm that has been done? Yeah, so it's easy to get caught up in these cases on uh, the lawyers involved and the parties involved and what it means in court and the drama of it. But really, you know, the lawyers and states and cities and counties suing say that what they're trying to do is get money to these communities. At this point, it, it really is just about the money. And so any settlements or judgments that can get finalized and money actually sent to a state or local budget, and then if that can trickle down into communities, that's where, uh, you know, the difference will come. If these communities can get some programs to help fight opioid addiction on the ground and not just have this money sitting in a, a state budget somewhere, that's when the difference could, could appear. That's all for today, Wednesday, August 28th. We'll see you on Friday.